Hey, it's been a while. I took a break from book stories around this time last year. I wanted to take this project in a couple different directions, but got sidetracked and life's usual this or that would never let me find a rhythm to get back into the show. Thank you to all the listeners that reached out and shared how much the pod meant to you over the past year. I've been reading a lot more lately, as I'm sure a lot of you are, and that got me generally missing my favorite bookstores and, frankly, book culture altogether. So Book Stories is back, for now. If nothing else, it's another creative outlet that I'll keep going as long as I can. If you're a regular listener, this won't be news to you. But if you're new here, you're listening to Book Stories, a podcast about bookstores, the books inside them, and book culture. I'm your host, Vic Singh. Please subscribe to Book Stories on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen. And thanks for helping us spread the word. This is a redux conversation, if you will, with John Evans of Diesel Bookstore in Brentwood. Since we last spoke, they recently opened a new location in Del Mar, California. For this redux episode, I simply wanted to check in with John, see how things are going, and get a sense for how he sees the future of book selling going forward. This is a tough and scary time for so many. Special thanks to John for being so candid and open about the realities he's facing and his hope and optimism about how we can emerge from this better. That's all I got. Here's John. So I just, uh, a couple of listeners, I had taken a break from the Book Stories podcast. It was a passion project, as you know. Um, But I was thinking about you guys and I thought about doing a redux, which is basically just checking in, uh, circling the wagons, if you will, um, because these favorite religious experience temples of mine, I don't want them to go away. And uh, so I thought I would talk to at least half a dozen of you, um, mostly just to check in and to get some insights um, as to how things have been going and what you've been up to and what your plan is going forward. That's kind of the essence of this. Yeah. So thank you for being with me today again. And I'll just start off, John, by asking you, how are things going? Well, let's see. So, I mean, they're going. Uh, It's a hard thing to, I mean, get your head around. I mean, everything is a hard thing to get your head around right right now. But um, the stores, you know, we've been, we have a store in Del Mar now, which the last time I saw you, we did not have. But um, so we have two stores, one in, in Brantwood, West LA, and then the Del Mar store. And <clears throat> both of which have been not open to the public, but have been uh, providing books as a kind of uh, central service, which, you know, scattered throughout the country. Some bookstores are open for shipping or open for curbside pickup or open for delivery and that kind of thing. So we've been open um, for pickup and for shipping since this began. Um, right now, that's becoming official uh, in the state of California with Governor Newsom at the end of this week. But um, in other parts of the country, through you know, governors, mayors, etc., um, bookstores have been seen as essential services that are allowed to do that kind of thing. Um, I don't think it's specifically been pointed out in California, but that's the way we've been doing it. Um, and a lot of Southern California bookstores have done similar things. So um, that's that. Now, so that means uh, a few of us, Skeleton Crew, have been doing the work of, uh, well, it's a lot, takes a lot more work in a way to do it. And, and the work is stranger. We're more like shipping clerks a lot of the time. Um, increasingly, as the weeks go by, we've been utilized more for our recommendations and that kind of thing. But there are, you know, stark differences between the way we do business now than we did before this began. And I don't know how soon or if, when these uh, will transition back to something approaching more like normal hundreds of years old book selling. So uh, is that good in a nutshell? Is it... (laughs) Um, I was going to chime in, but I wanted to let you go. I've, I wrote down a bunch of things to follow up on. Yeah. Uh, do you foresee opening like normal in 2020? Uh, have you had conversations around that 
notion? Well, it's been funny. You know, ever since this began, it's been um, even a week is too long to predict. Um, as, you know, the weeks have gone by, it's been six weeks or so, seven weeks. Uh, we're starting to plan further into the future a little bit to the extent that we can. With it, All of that is so uncertain. The future is so uncertain in so many regards uh, with regard to our bookstore and with regard to bookstores in general. Um, I mean, personally, do I anticipate that people will be walking around in our bookstore and browsing by the later this year? Yes, in some fashion. I don't know what, what number of people will be doing that or under whether they'll be masked or unmasked throughout the rest of the year. Um, I imagine masks will be with us for quite a while. Um, yes. I, I think just hearing through the airwaves today alone, like it's the states that are reopening, um, it is pretty much law that any person older than two yeah. has to wear some kind of a face yeah, covering. I certainly think that'll be the case for months. Uh, whether that's the case throughout 2020 is six months away, the, the end of it. So whether that'll be the case, um, it's probably a good idea. But um, we'll know so much more just sort of medically and just the behavior of things. I, you know, you hear even within my friends who are like, chemists and doctors and biologists have slightly different versions of what the uh, like what constitutes a viral load for who and what you know all those kinds of things and then what are the behaviors that go along with that but in the confined spaces of especially our store in Brentwood which is a very small store um, I don't know whether we're just going to be at some point not anytime in the near future meaning weeks from now um, will we be open for people to be walking through in any uh, in any numbers, right? We'll have to control if, when we open up the doors for customers to actually walk in, we'll have to control who comes in and how many people because it's so small. Our, our Del Mar store is much bigger, but I imagine the same thing would, would happen there, but it, there, there's much more room for safe social distancing. In as much detail as you're comfortable getting, how is your relationship with the landlord? How has that dynamic been playing out since we've been in pandemic mode? Yes, we have uh, two landlords. Um, there hasn't been, there's been talk of uh, deferment of rent, um, deferment, uh, and in Brentwood, the, the rent is, is sizable and based on um, what is now completely unrealistic sales expectations, right? So um, it's a problem. Uh, I think it's going to be a huge problem for, you know, moving it slightly away from us. But, you know, our, our landlord, we haven't really spoken with directly yet. We've spoken with one of his representatives briefly just about what's going on and that kind of thing. But within a month or so, um, I'm sure that conversation will get much more serious and whether... Um, I mean, the kind of financial pressure, you know, there's PPP loans and things like that that people are applying for, which we've applied for and haven't gotten. And, you know, there's lots of news articles about the dispersal of those funds. Um, Wells Fargo has been our bank and they have been notoriously bad at, at um, delivering PPP um, loans to smaller businesses, truly small businesses. They've been very good at doing it to large depositors. And uh, so... Whether that actually happens or not determines the future for a lot of bookstores. And then um, the relationships with publishers and with, uh, with uh, landlords, the publisher thing is consistent across all books selling. Um, that was my next question is what, it, what are things like with publishers right now and, and the deals that you have with your, your suppliers? I guess, you know, what I'd say about the whole thing is that um, – what this thing does like on a global level is point out all the uh, structural um, faults and inequities that are systemic, right? Worldwide. And uh, within the microcosm of that, which is bookselling, um, the relationship between bookseller and publisher, uh, the unequal, inequitable, um, 
unfair, disproportionate, however you want to <laughs> look at it, um, which has been a problem structurally and which has been addressed verbally, but not structurally um, for the last 10 years easy, if not 20 years, if not 100 years, um, is shown in high relief. And so um, whether publishers will respond to that in a rational way, as I would see it to be rational, <laughs> um, is very uncertain right now. I mean, everybody's kind of looking at it and depending on how you, uh, how you want to react to the news, um, some people hunker down um, who have the power to do so and then other people get more riled about uh, the consequences of this economically as well as socially and medically and you know, poverty, there's so many aspects. But so um, relationships with publishers in the immediate term is uh, for the most part, um, trying to figure out how to keep getting new books, new titles that are coming out. I mean, if you're an author that has a book coming out this spring, it's brutal, right? Because that book is not getting the exposure that it otherwise would. People aren't being able to browse it. And, and uh, if you're a publisher of such books, then that's brutal too. Um, so the economic effects are affecting everyone just disproportionately, some more than others. So they've been pretty um, flexible about the terms of paying back, right? So if you look at the whole thing as deferment of payment for booksellers, whether it's rent or whether it's publishers, um, what you'll see is, and if that just stays that way, the way that it looks right at this moment, you'll see uh, the closing of hundreds of bookstores throughout the country. Um, individually, some landlords may reevaluate their relationship with their booksellers so that, um, so that the rent is more in line with um, reality. The new, the new reality. The new reality uh, ongoing and, you know, it could be structured a million different ways. And, um, but that takes a certain flexibility on the part of the landlord that the landlord doesn't have to have, right? Um, but they might be more motivated to because it's going to be difficult for retail everywhere. But um, the downside is if things stay as they are right now, there will be a huge amount of bankruptcy of booksellers throughout the country. I mean, not to be like, because I'm kind of the opposite. As you know, I'm a pretty hopeful person in general. So um, I'm like the least likely to say it's going to be a complete disaster. And I also trust in the resourcefulness of uh, booksellers to figure out ways to make it kind of work up to a point. But current conditions make it pretty brutal for many book bookstores. Uh, and I imagine that will result in them closing, just like a lot of businesses. I mean, it's really, you know, everything I'm saying about bookselling applies to any other kind of retail. There's certain, you know, things we've talked about before that certain kinds of differences that have to do with cultural significance and things like that, um, that are special and unique to bookstores or like cultural institutions. But um, on the retail side of things, we share that with a lot of businesses that have tight margins, you know, restaurants. Absolutely. No, I was just seeing it all up and down Sunset Boulevard, how many places have already shuttered. And you mentioned cultural institutions. You obviously saw the news about what happened with uh, Amoeba. Um, Amoeba is not reopening. Uh, it is official in its current location. And, you know, that's a sad thing for a lot of people, um, particularly that are seeing all of these various industries get, quote unquote, bailed out. And I had a conversation at a safe distance from my neighbors yeah. in our neighborhood that, you know, we can bail out everything, but we seemingly cannot bail out the culture, which is something that I have kind of been thinking about. And part of the reason why I'm doing this redux with you yeah. um, thoughts on that thoughts on what it looks like to just not to extend this, this sort of pessimistic bent here, but yeah. um, if amoeba can't survive, then what is the little niche genre bookstore going to do? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, there's, well, one thing that's a positive thing to say is that uh, FDR, you know, there, there was cultural support. There's a, it's not that we can't, it's that we won't, right? That to support the culture, to value the culture enough to support it or to recognize uh, from cultural producers, you know, writers, artists, et cetera, 
to their to their publishers, their distributors, their galleries, their museums, etc. Um, to recognize that as a value, it is um, also unevenly distributed throughout the globe. Right? Some some countries have specific ways of dealing with uh, the risks to their culture, their cultural inheritance, and their cultural um, uh, creation. You know. So uh, for the future, the present, as well as the past. And uh, whether we decide to do that, um, you know, I mean, the, the political climate is with the president, et cetera, is sort of anti-culture in its messaging for the most part. So, um, so that's not particularly hopeful. But what's been really interesting, I think, is the power of governors and mayors to negotiate their individual terrains culturally. That's not great nationally, but it is great locally. And uh, that is certainly a possibility. But as things are presently, um, I don't really see that on the horizon exactly. It may, you know, everybody is dealing with this, whether you're a governor or whether you're a, uh, a business person or everybody is, is um, it's like triage with all the issues that are happening. The danger is that culture is not, um, it's definitely one of those things like, uh, what is it? It's a Tom Waits song, you know, like never knew the East coast till I moved to the West. You know, you don't, you don't know until it's gone. That's another song, you know, but it's a truism that you often don't realize what you lose until you've lost it. And uh, the thing is, the, the beautiful, wonderful thing about culture and creativity is that it will regenerate in some fashion or another, right? Hopefully. But it's what you lose in that transition. If, it, if it's brutal conditions with an unresponsive government and uh, um, a distracted um, population, then that sort of vigilance towards preserving the culture and its creativity, uh, which is a certain kind of life's blood. What's been reassuring about doing this the bookstore in this way is how many people have, uh, you know, left their house to pick up books at our store and have otherwise not left their house. You know, we're all masked and all that kind of stuff and we don't interact with anybody and it's, but how important it is, how important it is to people's mental health, how important it is to their cultural life, their spiritual life, their, you know, even just informational life. Um, which I don't necessarily think of as the most important part of what bookstores do, especially with all the other ways you can get it. But um, I think it's certainly a significant part of what we do, but all of the cultural, soulful, spiritual, creative ways that people um, process their lives and live their lives and enjoy and are productive in their lives. And that's been really reassuring under these you know, it only clarifies for the bookseller, the bookseller's mission or whatever, the significance of it, but its sustainability is pretty questionable. Well, yeah, like you're in one of the more, let's just say, economically resilient spots yeah. around the country. Um, and you mentioned your business has become essentially curbside delivery and curation or recommendation how sustainable is that for a, a location like yours it, like can that be the new normal uh long term and then the follow-up to that is like if you're comfortable talking percentages how much has your sales dropped the last couple of months 80 percent. so if if rent stays the same <laughs> you know, uh and if the employees you know keeping them you know, the, the unemployment situation, which is, you know, some people are working, some people aren't, but unemployment um, plus the $600 and stuff is very helpful for booksellers who don't make a lot of money to start off with. And uh, how long will that last? That's a big question. I don't know. How long will a California unemployment last with the numbers that there are? Um, so how do we bring them back without PPP money? How do we bring back people to be employed in the bookstore. Um, we're carrying their health care because we believe in that, um, whether they're working here or not. Um, so, and that's expensive. Um, there's no support for that. Um, so 
at 80%, you know, I mean, basically that's almost our rent, let alone what, what we have to pay the publisher. So it, sure. it's ridiculous. Um, unsustainable here and under these circumstances now we are doing and this includes the 80% loss in sales we are doing online sales and that kind of thing a lot you know so people are ordering we're shipping and ordering and shipping and ordering and shipping but this is from a small community of people that are willing it to exist right it's not a it's not a way to be sustainable in the future because part of the reason bookstores are so valuable is this 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 uh, aggregation of community yes. and right now we're all distant from each other so I, I would uh, I would suspect that a, a large part of the sales are those people that come in and just waste time in a bookstore and then scoop up three titles like how do you how do you account for that loss what can you do digital events I mean what is the calculus yeah I mean uh, we are we're started doing virtual events we've done five or six of them. We're doing a couple more this week and next week. Um, the sales on those are not that significant. It's an important part of keeping those things alive. You know, it's, it's part of our keeping events alive and keeping, um, keeping authors supported, keeping the books out there. Um, one of the startling things that's related to all this is that, I mean, you come to a bookstore often and we've talked about this before, but, of to find the things you didn't know existed, you know, to be turned on to things and exposed to things that um, we're bringing the whole world to you. And then you get to experience them and choose them and go, Oh my God, I've always wanted a book. Who knew there was a book on that? I've, I've always been interested in that and then buy it. That's very different than being told what to buy um, by either the publishers themselves or else the media in various ways. And so one of the disturbing predictable perhaps, but disturbing things is that the variety of books that we're selling is so much less, right? So that the cultural, the worry would be in the long term that the cultural production would become less diversified, that it would become more um, commercialized so that uh, the things that are published are the things they can promote, that they can promote in the venues that promote them. And it becomes a more of a media controlled culture than a uh, a culture that generates itself or a publishing business that responds to the culture that's on the street that's on the in the minds and hearts of the artists right so what people come to bookstores for is for that range of things along with picking up the books that they've been told to read or you know that have been reviewed extensively or however, whatever the mechanisms are. But um, some of those mechanisms since the internet certainly have in one way diversified it and then as we know has have consolidated it. Um, so that's an anxiety that a bookseller, an artist, uh, even a publisher would be concerned about. That people being exposed to less choose less diversity. Mm. The less of the culture gets circulated, gets seen, gets acknowledged, gets experienced. That's, I mean, you know, that's the way, I mean, you know from talking with me before that that's kind of where I, I live as a bookseller is in that, that role of bookselling. So, um, and my partner Allison too just sees, you know, the temptations for publishers to reduce the range of things that they publish into more palatable and more commercial things in response to a situation where customers are not discovering books in the way that they normally would in bookstores. It's a discovery problem. So we, for example, put our uh, photographed our bookcases and we photograph them every week as the stock changes and as we display them differently and post them on our website so that people can blow you know expand them expand the images and basically browse the shelves so they can still if they are that devoted to to reading which is only a certain percentage of our bookseller our, our book readers um if they're that passionate about browsing they have the opportunity to do so and we definitely had a spike of uh, business from that that continues now where you 
someone will call up and they'll say, well, yeah, it's right over, you know, it's on the third shelf. It's the, <laughs> it's the green and yellow book. That's, and uh, that's a very sweet thing, you know, but that's the kind of thing you're missing by not having the store open. And uh, that's the kind of thing that if, if you can't figure out, it's not satisfying for the customer to do it. It's a relief for the customer now because they, otherwise they don't have a choice. But, um, and I think for those kinds of readers and those kinds of customers, browsing will be a desired thing and it will resume in some fashion, somewhere, somehow. But with the current leases and the current publisher arrangements, I just think there's going to be a massive die-off of, of booksellers this year unless especially publishers change their discount structures. Which they are loath to do Yeah. since time immemorial. Yeah. So pandemic notwithstanding, it doesn't look like they're going to be the first option for rational thinking on no, this but, kind of I stuff. I mean, they've done it, but they've unfortunately done it with the most sort of culturally averse in principle, um, player, you know, Amazon, they've, they've accommodated Amazon's, I mean, with brand, the, you know, the boot on the neck or whatever. I mean, they, they have, Amazon had a stranglehold on them, which they gave them, but, um, we talked about that before, but, uh, so, you know, even if we had what Amazon was having, we'd be so much better off. Right. And, uh, that shouldn't be a stretch, but it probably is. Um, and whether that would happen on a legal basis or something, because that's changed quite a bit since the last time we talked. There's much more of a looking at Amazon's um, monopolistic power or whatever, you know. But uh, what you were describing about the virtual browsing, yeah. it was actually, it's so simple, but it sounds like such a fascinating innovation and an opportunity to drive sales. Like, Part of the experience is, yeah, like almost like a live browse, like a daily live browse yeah. where where recommendations are being made in real time. So many things that I buy, so many things that so many people buy come from recommendations. Um, and what you describe doing is is fascinating. And I, I, I hadn't heard of that before. Um, another thing that I'm curious about is lots of people and other businesses are having success with subscription businesses. Uh -huh. So like curating. I think I read that the last bookstore is actually doing something where I think they'll send you three or four books and it's a monthly subscription. They will pick the books that you get. Yes. How do you feel about that? What do you think about that? Is it something that you guys idea. are going to do? We've tried it uh, several times in the past. Um, it's a funny thing with an independent bookstore on one hand, um, you know, there's kind of carriage trade bookstores, right? Where the reader comes in and the bookseller is the authority and the bookseller tells them what they re should read and then they read it, right? That's a sort of carriage trade style. And uh, there are a lot of bookstores that function that way. And then, then there are bookstores where people come in to have the conversation with the bookseller and the bookseller finds the specific book for them in through that conversation, which is much more our style. And there's a cultivation in an independent bookstore of independent readers Right. And to the extent that you're successful at doing that, subscription is a little bit against that. It's a little bit saying, uh, you know, I really respect you. I really like you. I want to support you. And I'll passively accept your taste for what I should read without interacting with you. And uh, Good point. so I think in the there's nothing wrong with that, by the way, because actually, I believe that given a little bit of information from any person, most good booksellers could provide an excellent subscription-based thing. You know, if you if you got three books from Diesel every month that we chose for you, I think we would do a great job of providing you with interesting reading, right? And it wouldn't be the only reading you do, but it would be three books that you hadn't thought of maybe or that you also were surprised to discover you did want to read and you knew about already. Um, and I think that would be fine. And I think as a model, one of those kinds of things that, can help to sustain you with regular income is great. And uh, it hasn't been particularly successful with us. Um, we've also offered like local delivery and that kind of stuff. And that hasn't really helped both in Oakland. We did that and also in LA. So um, interesting. Yeah. In markets where you would suspect it would. I know. And so it's interesting that you said that 
I guess my point is moot then, because if it can't work in Brentwood, if it can't work in Del Mar. Um, no, I don't think it is moot because, you know, things change, obviously. <laughs> and, uh, and, and people's conception of things change and subscription models change, you know, as far as their popularity over time. So a lot of ideas that don't work one year will work five years later. So, yeah, that's true. And I think in certain areas or the way that you pitch it, it can be a million different things that, that affect that. I mean, one of the interesting things just about, you know, a sustaining bookstore, you know, the city lights, um, city lights is an outlier and is, is like the exception that proves the rule in so many ways. Right. So they ran into, you know, they did crowdfunding or, um, you know, GoFundMe campaign, which you probably heard about. So they asked for 300 or $350,000 and got closer to half a million dollars within a very short period of time. But they are a cultural icon that represents in some ways the hope for things to be almost 180 degrees different than what the way things actually are right now, right? So they, they sort of stand almost like a flag for alternative culture, for um, left politics, for beat culture, for creativity, you know, and they've been that globally as a kind of like interesting flag, interesting uh, symbol for all of those things. Mm -hmm. And so the support that they got, which is wonderful, because I, I love that story. We, I think we talked about that before too, but um, is unique though to them. I don't think there are many bookstores throughout the country that could do that kind of thing. And yet I think there are hundreds and hundreds of bookstores that need that same amount of money and aren't going to get it. You know, so that's, that's as far as the stark reality, City Lights saw what they needed given the circumstances that they had and they didn't sell online at that point. They do now. Um, and so they put a, a GoFundMe out there and they had worldwide support for that, which is excellent because it is, a, it's a real anchor cultural icon. And, uh, but in all the communities around the country, I think some support does come and has come and will continue to come. I'm just worried that it probably won't be enough. What are people, those that are buying, what are people reading? Has the tone or the tenor or the subject matter varied or kind of caught anything has anything caught your eye as far as interesting as to what's shifted or changed well i kind of referred to it before that the the sad part about it is that people are thrown back on the the media to provide lists they turn to the internet to get recommendations and then order online from us um and to the extent that they're doing it outside of diesel or outside of a more a diverse book culture organ, you know, someplace that um, they're buying the things that are the most popular things. Yeah. And so the variety has gone down. There were interesting things, you know, that, that like Boccaccio's Decameron, you know, War and Peace, where there's been um, book groups and also, you know, The Plague by Camus, things that are very topical related to um, our situation with COVID-19, but, um, but I'd say in general, yeah, the, the range of books has gone down. What's been interesting in the last few weeks is that more people are referencing and it may be exhaustion with the, the things that are, you know, top 10 lists and that kind of thing. Um, they're going to our reviews and we have video reviews by booksellers too, which helps. And, uh, so we'll see that somebody's going through Allison, for example, you know, or Al not Allison, but Allison reads uh, recommendations, and they're just picking, you know, three out of her ten, top ten recommendations and contacting us and getting. We're like, oh, that's interesting, because that doesn't tend to happen a lot, because most people are dealing with us face to face or over the phone. But over the last six weeks, some people have started to burrow more into our our website, which is nice. Um, and occasionally, you know, things like the, the Pulitzers just came out so that those things will generate, and those are often fantastic books and often they don't get as much attention until the award happens. Right. So things like that. But in general, I'd say it's what happens 
when you don't have access to discovery. And it's perfectly fine. It's important for people to keep reading. It's important for them to read, you know, the best-selling books too. But that kind of like deeper layer of reading um, is less so. That said, there's still the most devoted of our readers are still calling in with the most wide-ranging titles that they're looking for. Um, sometimes we have them in stock, hopefully, and then if not, we can get them for them. And uh, that's been a real pleasure, right? And I think it's it's becoming a, a more highlighted pleasure because um, because it's less common because there isn't that discovery happening in the store every day um, when somebody calls up with a really interesting range of books. We all get excited, you know. It's like, oh yeah, great. So couple more questions for you. Uh, do you think that because of what is happening, that there will be a resurgence or a re-emergence of the Barnes and Noble type stores? Do you see that coming back or is that pretty much a thing of the past going forward no matter what? No, I don't. No, I don't see that happening. Do you mean because of their sense of space? Well, because, you know, you're saying that a lot of stores are going to close down. So I'm just thinking in in aggregate, let's say all the bookstores in Denver shut down. There's going to be a need for bookstore there at some point and maybe Barnes and Noble or maybe, uh, maybe Amazon. I don't know, but like there'll, there will be like a big, large sort of department store of books as it were, um, because they've all kind of they've all gone to the wayside recently. Do you see there being a, a new need or a new version of that going forward? And do you see that as a potential business threat? It doesn't sound like you do, but it's businesses go in waves, right? Everything kind of ebbs and flows. And if a lot of retail, if a lot of mom and pop, if a lot of local retail goes out of business, there's obviously still a going to be a large slice of the population that wants to go out and go shopping. Um, it's sort of, a, it's sort of embarrassing to say that my wife and I are actually looking forward yeah. to being able to go to target again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we used to do that. We have two small kids yeah. and that's what we used to do on Friday nights. Yeah. We would go to target. Yeah. So, and they have books, they have like 16 books there. And I always look at them when I go, yeah. If there's no bookstores around, if there's no Skylight, if there's no, God forbid, if there's no Diesel, will there be a Barnes & Noble equivalent to come in and, and serve that population? Yeah. Um, it's it's hard to say. You know, the what would happen is that real estate prices would go down over time, right? We don't know what the effect on all this real estate, uh, retail real estate is going to be. Um, that's a big deal economically right i mean there are lots of you know the scenario i'm providing has to do with if there's no give in the structures that are currently in place and that includes you know um governmental flow of funds right like the ppp at this point 93 percent or something of the small businesses the truly small businesses in the country didn't receive anything from the initial mm -hmm. you know couple, three, I guess, uh, stimulus packages. So, um, and you're seeing a bunch of bigger companies giving the money back as a PR move. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's fascinating. The person that from Harvard that actually applied for one, I mean, how did that happen? You know, but, um, anyways, so it's possible that either at a state level, city level or a federal level, that monies would flow towards real independent businesses to make it sustainable for them for the next six months, um, nine months, whatever, to survive and make it through all of their costs and stuff, right? And then, then it has to do with, with uh, our behavior, like the desire to go shopping, to be amongst others. You know, this isolation is poisonous, right? It's, it increases suicide rates. It, you know, it increases fear and uh, animosity and all the things that have already been kind of bad in our, our society. Um, in some ways, those are intensified. Um, arguably, they're also shown to be problematic. And a lot of people are responding in the opposite way. They're responding in a compassionate way and wanting to get together way. They recognize the importance of it. So if, if uh, consumer behavior, so to speak, 
changes to um, wanting to go out regularly and committing their dollars to local businesses and doing all that kind of stuff, which, you know, is a reasonable response to it and doing it in a safe way so that there isn't another spike in COVID-19 over the next year. And that if there is actually a, um, a way to fight it, you know, a vaccine, then um, it may be that with those couple things, um, that independent bookstores will still be here, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not a lot conceptually, certainly. <laughs> Uh, where there's a will, the question is, is there a will or not? <laughs> but where there's a will, there are, you know, a bunch of ways that that's totally sustainable. And, and you're quite right, you know, early on you, you said that we're in a place that is resistant to a lot of um, the dangers. I mean, the, the danger for us is our high rent, right? Um, but the population around us is so ridiculously affluent, um, you know, it's just compared to most places. Um, the ability of this community to support this bookstore is pretty obvious. Um, yeah. And so will it, I don't know, you know, and, uh, but in other communities, similar intention is in place. You know, I know, I know bookstores that are getting quite a strong response by their local customers and we are too. It's just uh, the fraction of what we normally do, but, they're getting a strong response to how do I sustain you? You know, they buy gift certificates into the future. You know, these are the kinds of things that, that help you buy your, you know, like we added digital gift certificates onto our website. So people can buy a gift certificate for the store so that it's around. I'm not saying that my expectation is that these won't be here. That's goes entirely against my nature. I'm just saying that without give on the part of real estate, without give on the part of publishers, many bookstores will be lost. Um, yeah, I don't plan on being one of them, but I don't want any of them to go. Real estate is going to be key for so many industries. I've done a lot of other shows, um, other projects that we're working on too, where we're talking about the future of work, um, what it means, what it, what it's going to mean in you know in the short term, and then obviously in 2021, a lot of businesses are realizing that they're getting as much, if not more, productivity with yes. people being disparate, yes. and so the commercial real estate market is effectively going to yes. collapse. Uh, there's not, there's going to be offices, there's lawyer. I know a bunch of lawyers, right? I'm a former lawyer myself that are, uh, that are realizing now, wow, I could have been doing all this yes. and we could have been doing these meetings and the clients, by the way, are realizing, Hey, what, a, wait a second, we're, we're, our retainers need to get readjusted yes. um, because you, you don't need, you don't, we don't need the, the, the catering service, the lunch. We don't need, you know, the the office conference room right. with a, with a 360 degree view anymore. So that is an interesting thing that I think will trickle down to main street in the sense, in the form of lower rents. The question is how swift will that transition happen? Right. The other, the other, the other aspect to that, and I agree with all the things that you're saying and I, you know, to drive a commercial real estate person nuts, but they're, there have been a lot of conversions, whether that's shopping malls, which are also have suffered over the last decade or so, um, to residential conversions, right? So just like yeah. you have, uh, the homeless, which has been a horrible problem worldwide, but especially nationally, and people think it's only in California or in LA, but it's actually all across the country. I've been in Minneapolis and it's been horrific. Um, the housing of the, you know, the, the economics of it are all possible if again, there's a will for it to convert commercial real estate to residential real estate and, and have housing for the poor uh, federally subsidized, right? Um, that's not a popular notion. It's a reasonable solution. It's just not a popular notion. Um, and then the, the commercial real estate people would be involved in residential real estate, right? As well as commercial real estate. And people would be living locally. There'd be less environmental pollution there'd be more locally based community stuff, right? You, you work for three hours and then you walk down to the coffee shop, you get some coffee, you pick up a book, you go back home, you're productive for another five hours or whatever. Um, everybody at your, your, your boss is happy about your work. You feel great about your work. My sister is working at home for the first time in 30 years and she's never been happier working. I mean, she's working just as much as she was before. 
but she loves the environment so much more than her, her workplace. And uh, it's easy to do. You know, this happened with, with 9-11. It happened, it's happened repeatedly over the last 20, 30 years that people have been driven home by circumstances. And we think, oh, maybe we'll learn from this. You know, it's sort of like learning that war is a bad thing. And then we keep forgetting and get involved in it again. But this is a, a, a message that's been given to us, you could say, over and over. And uh, we haven't chosen it. But it's interesting. Uh, there, there are a lot of customers speaking in a more hopeful tone, maybe even a utopian tone, that isn't it obvious, all these problems, right? Like the environmental problems in LA, how bad the air was. I know that some of that is you know, based on weather conditions, but a lot of it is obviously based on bad traffic. If all those people are staying home, wow, what a difference in the quality of life and in the quality of the planet and in climate change and all those things. You know, it's an interesting time. I kind of have this, I do these things with words like COVIDity, the idea of turning it into something positive. So like seeing each other, COVIDity is a way to see each other in this time where we all see each other as under the same conditions of a fear of a virus and death and that we collaborate to stop it. Why don't we look at how we can actually create a better world? And uh, it's interesting how many customers come up and say, you know, I just think we're all learning something from this. We're all thinking about it. And I think, you know, from your mouth to God's ears, I don't know if that's true, but I hope it's true. You know, the thing that I read about Yosemite a few weeks back about how all the wildlife is like coming out in droves yeah. and they're, they've taken over the park. Yeah. Um, that's such a beautiful thought, you know, and, and I, I, talk to somebody about like how how can we keep that these are these these are the positives to your point about uh, what we can get from this like how do we make how do we make the air quality in la stay the way that it is yeah. like let's this is if there's if now's not the time then when is yeah you know when is it ever when are we ever going to have this opportunity again same with national parks same with wildlife same with the environment not to get too political about it but it's like there's all these there's all these ways where we can we are forced into a position where we can actually do something positive and not be political about it and not be you know sort of like wormy about the the policies and what businesses are going to be effective because right now every business that's is right. being completely decimated yeah. um so i i'm that's my hope as well i have that one little grain of of optimism yeah. that we'll actually do something right on yeah we'll i see. hope so this past two weeks ago uh I, whenever i'd come out of a we live in lucadia down del mar that that area for the other uh, bookstore and uh, come out of our trailer. We live in a trailer park down there and a hummingbird kept meeting me when I came out of the front door and I could think that's so weird. That's three days in a row, a hummingbird as soon as I walk out the door. And then I realized it had built its nest on our deck. And so we have a little hummingbird nest sitting there on our deck. And I was like, fantastic. Like I see it every day. I kind of like wave to it when I go off to work, it's sitting there. And they're so still when they're there, but um, you know the, the and there's also the the um, bioluminescence in the in the red tide down there, and every night people either drive or walk or ride their bikes, and maintain social distance and stare at the waves turning blue as they break onto the beach in southern Southern California, you know, San Diego, all down that that way. It's really pretty. But uh, that, Amazing. that kind of becoming more aware of the natural environment has also happened because everybody's rush has stopped, right? They aren't hurtling through their every day. It's interesting. I'm envious. You have a hummingbird's nest. We have a hornet's nest that we have to get rid of immediately oh, yeah. because it's potentially going to inflict a bunch of damage on us. Um, what are you doing personally right now to get through this time? What are you reading uh, what are you listening to? What are you thinking about? What has been, have you come up with any new rituals? Have you, have you learned anything about yourself? This is the, my final lasting thought from you. Yeah. Well, I've been working uh, seven days a week since February 20th. So um, I don't know. I don't know if ritual is maybe working, you know, another eight or 10 hours a week than I normally do. Um, I think I've been more disciplined about eating in some ways. Uh, but uh, as far as my reading, there's one book that I just think is, is, it's rare that I have a book that I feel like every single person should read. Usually it's a, a fiction 
that I feel that way about. But there's a book called The Dictionary of the Undoing by John Freeman, who teaches at Columbia. And uh, he's also the editor for Freeman's Quarterly and used to be the editor for Granta Magazine. He's a poet as well as an essayist and uh, editor and just a huge cultural advocate. But it's it sort of... Um, does a deep dive, and I don't mean like an intellectually deep dive, though it is really smart, but uh, uh, just a thoughtful dive into what it means to be alive right now, what it means to be a person amongst other persons, and how to uh, heal the language from all the distortions that have happened in politics especially, but also in the business world and the ways in which we've allowed the language we use to speak about the way we live together to be distorted by all of these concerns that have nothing to do with that. And it proceeds in an almost poetic way, but the language of it is like he's just talking to you. And it is extraordinarily good. And it's, it's, it's uh, good for mental health. I've given it as gifts to people and they're just like, oh my God, this is the first thing I've read in, in, since all this began that I just feel so relieved by. So that, and then uh, several books of poetry, including that there's a new translation of uh, Giorgio de Chirico, the painter, the surrealist painter who has all those public spaces with hardly any people in them. <laughs> uh, but his poetry was just translated for the first time into English. And that book is interesting in a surreal way about, um, because the tone is there, that same kind of tone of uh, sort of absence. So that's been beautiful. And uh, there's a new Rilke translation of Sonnets to Orpheus. I've been reading, I read a lot of poetry, but I especially am reading poetry. And last month was Poetry Month. But so I'd say it's poetry and that book of John Freeman have been talismans. Wonderful. And two recommendations I would have not gotten anywhere else. So thank you. I look, I appreciate your time. Thank you for doing this Redux conversation with me. Uh, I wish you guys the best of luck, and I hope to see you in person when we get through yeah, the other side of this. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Take care, Vic. Take care. Yeah.